Good morning, City Light. If, if you would join me in prayer to start this morning. Just praying that God would uh, speak to us through his word, conform us to the image of his son. Uh, Lord God, we come to you this morning and we're asking you to reveal yourself to us. What an undeserving people we are, and yet you have so graciously lavished everything upon us. And part of that is you've revealed to us who you are. Um, and we're begging you to do that this morning. Uh, we pray that as we're wrestling through a tough subject of judgment, we're asking you that you would reveal um, your heart in judgment to us and that we uh, would understand your judgment in a way that leads us to spend less time wondering if you love us and more time telling others about Christ. Um, yeah, we just want to pray for an overall softening of the hearts in the room because we know that any talk of judgment can build up walls and layers, and we're praying for soft hearts and that you would conform us to the image of your Son through your Word and by your Spirit. So we pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. I'd like to share with you a story that happened to me a couple months ago that I was not actually originally anticipating would ever be spiritual and that I definitely was not anticipating that I would ever be sharing at the beginning of a sermon. But uh, if, if you don't know me very well, then you might not know this, but people that know me well know that I'm not handy at all. I don't know really how to use almost any tools Anytime I like need to do something, I'm really grateful to be in the church because there's usually handy people that feel bad that I'm in ministry and help me out. And in college, my furniture was literally made of cardboard and duct tape. And you're like, oh, that was, that's creative. No, it's because I didn't know how to hang a shelf. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. I'm not handy in any way. I'm like miserably just, I'm pathetic with tools. I don't, I'm not good with it, which maybe I just lost respect in some of your eyes. That's okay. I'm going to move on. But the story began with Jeff Ryan doing a classic Jeff Ryan thing. And if you're wondering what that is, basically how the workday goes for Jeff is he observes something that's pretty sketchy. And then he asks somebody, why is this thing sketchy? And how long has it been sketchy? Where we then laugh because we've been here longer than Jeff. We say, oh, Jeff, it's always been sketchy. And then Jeff leaves and embarks on this mission to fix the things that we've just kind of left forever. Well, one of those things was the mailbox that we had outside this building for years. It was literally this janky old mailbox. People send us money. We're a church. And it was literally just, just a mailbox that you just open. And Jeff was like, this is a mess. Like, you can't just have a mailbox that literally you just walk up to open, take whatever you want. So he put in this big Bertha mailbox that you know, is secured and this whole thing. But one day I'm walking into work and Jeff's doing his Jeff thing. He's like sweating and just laboring to get this mailbox in the ground. And I'm like, Hey Jeff, how's it going? I just walk past him. Cause I got stuff to do. And he looks at me and he's like, by the way, could you help me? And I'm like, Oh no, please let there be somebody else on the staircase. There wasn't, it was just me. And I looked at him and he's like, help me make sure this mailbox is plumb. Plum. I'm like, I, I know what a plum is, I think, but I can't for the life of me understand how a fruit, I think a plum's a fruit, is going to help. Maybe I don't know what a plum is. I can't imagine how this is going to help us to set up a mailbox. And so I'm just like meandering over like, why God, why not anyone else? And he takes out his app 
It's literally just a leveling thing and sets it on there. And he's like, let me know when it's vertical. I was like, oh, I don't have to do anything. I just look at you and tell you when it's set. Well, Jeff Ryan taught me a, a deeply biblical lesson that day that for something to be plumb means that it's perfectly vertical. Now, Jeff had no idea that he would be equipping me to preach Amos chapter seven, but he indeed was as we read about a vision of a plumb line. Now, Austin is really generous and strategic and stewards these topics well. So in the Knowing God series, I've been given to explain God as judge. So (laughs) grateful for that, for Austin. No, but actually, um, as we look into this, and we're going to see the judgment of God, and I think many of us think something when we hear about the judgment of God, and a lot of those things probably have grains of truth. But what I also want us to see this morning is that for the people of God, the church, there's actually something uh, maybe different than what you would understand about God's judgment. And I hope, and I prayed about it at the beginning here, but I hope that when, by this morning, as we learn about God's judgment, it would actually be, do two things. It would help us to spend more time telling lost people in our lives about Jesus and less time wondering if God really does love us. That's what I hope that we learn this morning, those two things. In other words, to use Amos language, I want to know what happens when the plumb line is set next to humanity and what happens when the plumb line is set next to the church. Those are the two things I want to look at as we're looking in this text and then we'll move to the New Testament as well to look at the church. So as you look at Amos chapter 7, that we're going to mainly focus on verses seven through nine, but I am having, I, what I had read was verses one through nine for a specific reason. And that's because as um, interested, curious Bible readers, we're supposed to notice certain things that indicate importance of other things. So like, here's an example of something that we should clearly notice. Something we should clearly notice is the use of repetition in verses one through six. So the Lord shows Amos two visions The first vision is of a storm of locusts that come and devour everything. They eat everything. The second is a vision of fire that consumes and devours everything. Both of these visions are about complete and total destruction over the land, over the people of Israel. Now, what I want you to notice is the repetition of what happens here. Listen to what Amos says in the first one. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Then the next one after the fire. Oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. In both of them, a vision comes of destruction Amos has a response, praise in intercession for the people and God relents, but something changes in the next vision. Actually a lot changes. And we're supposed to notice that because the first two visions had the exact same pattern, but the third vision has a wildly different pattern. In fact, Amos doesn't get to say anything besides two words to answer a question. And then he's completely silenced more than that. God does not choose to relent from the destruction that's coming to the people. But instead, after this undeniable fact that God is holding a plumb line in the midst of his people, there is no space for relenting. And God says, I'm going to completely destroy these people in my judgment and wipe them off the place of the face of the earth. Their king will be destroyed. Their high places will be made low. 
My judgment will come and there's not anything for Amos to say or do about it. And so it's fairly significant for us to understand what this vision is and what the plumb line has to do with it. Because the only thing that God asks is, what do you see? Amos says, a plumb line. And then he sits. He's got nothing else. Nothing else to say. So here's what the vision says in verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. It's not rocket science for us to figure out the point here is the plumb line. He says plumb line for, I want to stop saying plumb line, but he says it. So I'm going to keep saying plumb line. So what is the vision and what is the deal with this plumb line? Well, okay. So you first noticed that he was standing next to a wall built with a plumb line. They didn't have the app like Jeff Ryan. So it'd be a string with a weight on the bottom and gravity would show the str- It would show what is vertical. So in essence, there was a wall built with a plumb line, a wall that was built to be straight up and down. And now he's standing again at this wall, holding a plumb line again, Assumably that that wall is no longer standing straight because he's measuring that it's not straight anymore. And if it's still not clear yet, he gives us clarity. Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. In other words, Israel was made as a people given the way to live a life that's whole and righteous with a plumb line. They were given a standard of how they were to live. And now in this vision, what silences Amos is the standard because God returns and shows that plumb line and shows that the people are so crooked, they might as well be a wall that's collapsed flat on the ground. So I want to ask, what is the plumb line? What's the standard? And for the Israelites, we would understand that to be the Mosaic law. You know, the, the, The prophets in the Old Testament can be understood as covenantal enforcers. In other words, the Israelites were given a law and then the prophets were people who would then come and enforce that law because typically the people were not following the law. And most of that law can be summarized and found in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you just scanned through the book of Deuteronomy, you would see that the beginning of Deuteronomy has much to do with our relationship with God, refraining from idolatry, obedience to him, teaching your family and your children about faith in Yahweh. And all of that, it says in Deuteronomy, will lead to life for the people. And then the back half of Deuteronomy is primarily about relationships with one another and how, and ceremonies and how you're to interact with different groups of people, explaining that a love for God should lead to love for man. And that's the explanation of the law. But Amos comes and he's judging the people of Israel over what? Well, first he comes to them that they are not following the first part of the law. They do not love God. Chapter two of the book of Amos says that the people of God are chasing after other gods of other nations. They're engaging in pagan idolatry. It says that the men are going into the fertility gods, places of worship and performing acts of sexual immorality and impurity. So they're defiling themselves and they're defiling their relationship with God. Chapter four of Amos He calls these group of women cows of Bashan, which by the way, culturally language doesn't matter. Anytime you 
call a group of people, call a group of anybody, but if you call a group of women cows, we've got issues. Like Amos clearly is not trying to make friends in this, in the, like he's, he's giving judgment. He's literally saying, you people are taking everything for yourself and refuse to help those lesser than you. And on top of that, you continue to worship other gods and they never return. Now, pause for a minute. For anyone that thinks that it's literally just, it's miserable that Deuteronomy would be 34 chapters of rules. And that is the biggest bummer that God could do. I want us to understand the heart behind the law that Amos is enforcing, that the plumb line was that standard. It was not designed for us to live miserable lives, but actually the exact opposite. So my... My, at, my, at our house, um, my wife and I built, and by built, I mean we did nothing to this room. As I've said before, I can't. But we put a playroom in the basement. And all that that means is we just didn't put anything in it. So at both the entrances of the room, there's baby gates, there's couches on one wall, and the rest of the room is like toys and free reign for Ruth to do whatever the heck she wants. And I've never looked at Ruth and said, do you want to go play in the basement? You want to go play downstairs? And she just screams in resistance because she hates it. Now, every time, like, you want to go downstairs? She just goes nuts because she loves it. Because she can do whatever she wants in the confines of what I've set up in that room. I've plugged all the outlets, whatever. It's different because I've set it up. The law was meant to, to be a space where humanity could have free reign to live a whole life in the confines of what God has designed us to most enjoy. Example, he's designed sexual intimacy between man and wife. And in that context, it's a beautiful gift. Every time we wander outside those perimeters, every time we wander outside of that, if you're not married, wandering to, into that with someone you're in a relationship with or not, if, we are, if you are married, wandering outside of that with things like pornography and other, if wandering outside of those and what happens, you're miserable and you feel the pain of it. But inside of the confines of the perimeter of the law, the rules given to humanity, we can actually thrive and enjoy life. So the first piece of that law was that it was designed so that we could actually live the most real, whole human life experience. The law was also given though, to show the people whether or not God would judge them. In other words, you see all the time in the law that God says, do this and live, don't do this and you will be destroyed. The second use there in the law was to actually show the people what would bring judgment upon them. And then the last and the most important of all of those uses when we talk about the law is that it was designed to teach people how they were to give praise and glory to God, which is the ultimate and greatest end in all the universe that God would receive praise and glory for his great name. All of those things are designed in the law. And what Amos is coming to do is to saying, you've missed it, Israelites. You've missed it in every place. And this vision that silences Amos is the standard of seeing this is exactly what you were supposed to live like and you chose not to. Now, when we look at that standard and it silenced Amos, for us, I think there might be a little bit of confusion because we don't actually necessarily follow the Mosaic law. There's a lot of things in there that don't naturally actually apply to us. And so what, what that means for us is we need to try to understand what is this standard. And what I think of is a story in the Bible of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah walks into the, this throne room and sees God on the throne. And what he says is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips surrounded by men of unclean lips. 
Woe is me. A woe is prophet talk for judgment. Except instead of pronouncing woe to surrounding nations, he says, woe is me. He says, I'm judged. I'm the one that stands in judgment before this God. Now, what's interesting is that Isaiah doesn't walk in and see God holding a scroll with the Mosaic law on it. He walks in and sees God himself. It says, woe is me, which shows us that standard. The Mosaic law is actually just a mirror to show us who God is, his very character. The standard by which we are to be judged is God himself, his righteousness, his wholeness. So what do I mean when I talk about judgment? That God's a judge, that he's just. So justice and righteousness are used interchangeably in the Bible. And what what they basically mean is that God is completely whole. He's without fault. Everything that should happen, all the wrongs will be right. He does everything rightly. He's righteous. And the opposite of justice, righteousness in the Bible would be a word called iniquity, inequity. It's not whole. It's not right. And so A.W. Tozer has this definition of judgment that I'm going to use. And it's basically applying equity to moral decisions. What does that mean? It means you and I make decisions And then justice, the judge, applies a perfectly good standard to it and sifts out anyone that doesn't meet that standard is disposed of, and anyone that does is taken and rewarded. So let's use an illustration that the Bible uses that we're all super familiar with. Everyone knows about threshing floors and winnowing forks, right? Okay, let's do it. So the Bible uses the definition of a, or an illustration of a threshing floor. What that is, is so you harvest wheat, And you've got this pile of wheat that isn't just wheat, it's got chaff on it. And how you remove wheat from chaff is applying pressure to it. And, but you can't do this with every piece of grain. That would be a waste of time. And so what the threshing floor is a big circle that an animal is carrying a board or dragging a board that goes over the wheat, separates the wheat and the chaff. And then a winnowing fork is a guy goes behind with a big fork, puts it in the pile of wheat, throws it up in the air, and the wind takes the chaff and carries it away. And the actual wheat, the good crop falls back to the ground. So you keep doing that and the chaff goes away. John the Baptist uses this illustration to talk about Jesus when he says that he will come and be the judge and the chaff will be burned away. If you're not super familiar with winnowing forks, threshing floors, how about when you were a kid and you did the fake gold mining thing where you put sand and rocks in a strainer, you just shake it and then all the sand falls through, but the rocks are still there. This is what judgment is from a biblical understanding that God will apply a set standard to all people And those that sift through will be disposed of, and those that remain will be rewarded. And the question is, what is the standard, the plumb line? And it's God himself. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The standard is God himself, and all that do not live to that standard will be sifted away, disposed of, and cast out. Judgment will come fairly to all who do not live up to the standard. So what happens when that plumb line is set next to humanity? We are sifted away. So I want you to take a minute and I want you to think, who is a lost person in your life? Who's somebody that is separate, far from God in your life? 
I know there's countless people in this church who I know who have loved ones and people they care about that are towards the end of their life in the hospital, far from God. Who are the people closest to you in your proximity that don't know Jesus? And I want you to think about the law, what we talked about, the purposes of it, and then think about its implications for those people. The first thing is they were designed to live a whole human experience and enjoy life. And they're not doing that. They're living outside the confines of what God has designed for their life. So you wonder why lost people, people that don't know Jesus, even though they seem delightful and wonderful, in the dark, like when you really get to see someone vulnerable for who they are, why, they're, why they are miserable in a lot of ways is because they don't, aren't living in a way that God's actually designed for them to live. You can't experience true life, the true human experience apart from the way that God has designed it. But that's not even the most important. They have done the things that God by his standard has said that he will bring judgment upon them. So the people that you think of will stand before God like Isaiah and say, woe is me, judgment. They will agree with the declaration of judgment that should be on them and they will have nothing that they can say about it. This is what judgment means for them, but that's not even the most important. Most important is that the praise and honor and glory deserved to God for his great name, they actually are not praising him. He's not receiving the glory that he deserves from all people. Church, is this not why we go? Is this not why we go to all tribes, tongues, languages, peoples, and nations? Because the person down the street from you, the guy who abuses his family and gets drunk five times a week, that man, God deserves the praises of his name from that man's lips. The student that sits next to you in class, who's a straight A student, but all her identity is found in school and performance, and that's everything to her. God deserves the praises from her lips. The barista or the barber that you see every single month, some of you every single day getting your coffee, that you've developed this relationship with, and the most that you know about them is that they just want to make money and serve themselves with it. That's their life's goal is to do that. God deserves the praises from their lips. Japan has 123 million people with less than half percent of that population Christian, which means most people born in Japan will live, and even if they searched all over, all the people that they knew for somebody to tell them about Jesus, if they searched everywhere, they couldn't find someone to tell them. They will die and for the rest of eternity experience judgment because no one is there to tell them. Is this not why we go? Jordan has 11 million people less than a third percent Christian. Is this not why we go? And it's not because they're not living whole lives. It's not just because they deserve judgment because of the standard with which they'll be judged, but it's because God, we're a God-centered missions people because God deserves the praise of his name from their lips, from the Japanese and the Jordanians and the person down the street. We go with the gospel because judgment is real. Eternity is real. And we go because we've got a message that they won't just see and hear by looking up in the sky, but they need to hear it from us. Judgment is real and it should lead us to spend a lot more time telling people about Jesus, the good news of salvation that's come to man. Now, if you're like me, 
you hear the, the stuff that Amos is judging the Israelites for, and you're like, yeah, idolatry, you know, sexual immorality. R- right. Good thing that just the Israelites do that. No, I listen to that, and I'm like, oh, no. Like, that's literally me. That describes me, a sinful man living in sin, dwelling in sin often. And that describes me. So the question that I have when I'm reading this that I want you to have is what, like, what does that mean for me? If God's response for the people of Israel living in sin is that he would destroy them, what does that mean for you and I? Does that mean he's also in the same way as Israel going to destroy us for our sin? And this is the hard part with topical sermons is I don't, I don't like love transplanting us to another verse, but I want us to go to 1 John chapter 1 because I want to answer the question here. What does God's judgment mean for the church? Or maybe to put another way, what happens when the plumb line is held up next to the Christian, the church? And when I say Christian, I don't just mean someone that shows up here on a Sunday morning, like those that have believed and cast themselves upon Jesus for salvation and life. What hap- That's who the church is. What happens when the plumb line is held next to the church? Because we live a lot like the Israelites. What happens? And here's kind of what I want to do. I've been very confused about a verse for a very long time because of one word. And, and I just kind of want to vent my confusion and hope that it's helpful in some way. So, 1 John 1, chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And I'm trying for us to understand, again, we're not just moving to another verse just to move to another verse. I don't even really like doing that. But we're trying to show that if we understand God's judgment, we will spend more time telling people about Jesus and less time wondering if God loves us or not. 1 John 1, verse 9. Maybe you've heard it before. If I can find it. There it is. Um, It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't actually have a problem with like most of that verse. I get it. God's faithful. He forgives us from our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Because we don't have a ton of time to go into it. My understanding here is that that John is talking about relational forgiveness, that we're actually forgiven once for all sins when we trust in Christ, but the Christian life is marked by returning to God for forgiveness because I want to be drawn in by him. So that's my understanding of 1 John 1, 9, that this is about the Christian not seeking salvation, right standing with God, but seeking relational forgiveness. I'm not worried about any of that. Here's the one word that I, that is just frankly confusing. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In my mind, it's impossible for someone to be just to forgive us our sins because forgiveness by definition is getting what we don't deserve and justice is rightly applying what we do deserve. And so I could understand him being just and faithful, but what on earth would it mean for the church that he's just to forgive us our sins? He's just to forgive us our sins. And my argument to you would be that he can only be just to forgive us our sins if that justice has been given to someone else on our behalf. 
In other words, it would be unjust for that payment to be paid twice. And that justice was poured out on another on our behalf. And here's why I think this is important, why I told you that John's talking about relational forgiveness, like our life as a Christian, is because Romans 3 talks about how God is the just, just, and the justifier of sinners. In other words, for salvation, our justice that was deserved for us was poured out on Jesus. That's how we could have life. But this is talking about living my every day-to-day life as a Christian. And I think we miss this a lot. So um, here would be an illustration. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, described justification as a pile of dung in a field that in the midst of a snowstorm, so the snow covers the dung, and all you can see on the top is the white sheet of snow. But under it is a pile of dung. And that's the Christian life. And in a way... That is true because we have the righteousness of Christ that covers us and all of our fill. There's a pretty good illustration for justification, but this is usually where we stop when we explain the Christian life. I just was talking to a guy literally a couple days ago in our church that I love and respect. And it broke my heart because he talked about he's been raised in the evangelical church and what he's been taught is that we are, when we, we have this moment where we trust in Jesus His righteousness covers us and that secures our eternity. All of those things are true. And as Christians, that's like the chance, that's the foundation of our faith. But then he said, and in the middle, as I'm waiting for eternity, I'm just hoping to try to live a good moral life. I know the spirit's going to do that. And I'm trying to live a moral life now in waiting for eternity. And that's where we've missed it. Why is it that we could go to God right now and he'd be faithful and just to forgive us is not just because he's given us a righteousness to stand on for eternity, but actually because he's given us an entirely new identity to live in right now in the present. God's justice is actually Christian, not against you anymore, but it's for you. Because Jesus has paid and earned the justice that was deserved for you. Not earned. He's paid and was punished with the justice that was deserved for you. Now, as we, I want to try to understand and unpack this a little better with our identity and what that actually means. It means that if you think about it, most of your, most of our problems aren't actually found in the big sins that we commit. Um, Those seem to be more symptomatic for what is actually true of us at a root level. Usually the big problems in your life come from insecurities and lies that you believe that aren't true about who you are. But I'm worthless, I'm not loved, God doesn't care about me, I'm unwanted, I'm not sufficient, I can't, I'm un, I can't do, I'm incompetent, I'm not safe, I'm not secure. And as we let those lies and insecurities fester, what usually comes is the outflow of that, the sins in our life usually produce. But what I think that the Bible tells us is that we presently have an identity that cannot be shaken regardless of the things that we do. We can actually presently come to God and it's just for him to forgive our sins because our identity is totally new. The problem with Luther's illustration is that you and I live our lives oftentimes like praise God that Jesus came and saved me, but currently I'm a pile of dung and I'm just going to keep rolling down this hill and collecting more dung along the way. And every chance that every time I sin, I'm wondering, does God actually 
love me? Does he actually care about me? But the Bible has words for what happens to the Christian, and that's that Jesus makes you a new creation. What a new creation means is that you're given a new identity. Here's a couple of verses. Why is it that Paul can tell the church in Corinth, the most dumpster fire church in all the New Testament? This is what he says to him To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth, Paul gives them an identity and says, you are saints, a holy people. How is it that Paul could tell the church, the Colossian church in Colossians three, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Their identity is that they're chosen ones, holy and beloved. How is it that God, that Peter could tell the elect exiles he's writing to, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. How could he tell him that? Because when you trust in Jesus, you are given a brand new name tag, a brand new identity, a new status before God, not just a shield of righteousness that saves you for eternity, but currently, presently, an unshakable identity change because you as a new creation can come before God as a beloved, holy nation of saints, a royal priesthood chosen by his own good graces. That's who you are, which means that as you, this changes everything with how we live. If you're sitting on the bus, in the middle of being going from class to class. You're a holy priesthood. You can enter into the presence of God as if you were in the temple thousands of years ago. In the midst of your darkest moments of wondering if anyone loves you or cares about you, you can remember, I, my identity is beloved. I actually am loved. I actually am a holy nation. This is who I am to my core. Now there's two dangers of what I'm saying. One is that I could be going Roman Catholic and the other one is that I could be going prosperity. When I say Roman Catholic, this is the teaching of Rome is that the sacrifice of Christ infuses righteousness into us like cucumber water. Like you just, for long enough and then you'll start to, it'll start to taste like cucumber. Um, Which I don't know, anyways, okay. (laughs) Continuing. Uh, But the teaching of Rome is that we are infused righteousness which means we become righteous And a mortal sin is that which kills justification, ruining that righteousness. The righteousness falls on us. Prosperity teaching would say what? You need to say the I am's. I am strong. I am successful. I am healthy. I am beautiful. Well, not beautiful. Well, you are beautiful. You guys are beautiful. I am all these things. And that's horrible because neither of those things are actually true of you. We're not strong, successful. We're not righteous fragrance like Christ. But instead, we're a people who say my identity is actually solely reliant upon someone else who came and lived and died and actually rose from the dead to make me a new creation. Give me a new identity. It's all about him. 
It's all about him and his work. And I can presently, currently live in that reality, never once wondering, does God really love me? Because your identity, Christian, is that you're a holy, beloved people, a chosen race, saints called out by God for his own good purposes. That's who you are. Every sin that you commit is not, is actually you living outside of who you are currently. You are not a pile of dung. Because God in his graces has called you out from darkness into light and has given you a new identity. Now I'm sticking with the pile of dung illustration for justification because that's just true. We, by our works, cannot be saved. God has justified us and at the end, our works will not save us. It's the work of Christ, but it's that same work of Christ that has made you a new creation, Christian, that has given you a brand new identity, The reason why you can repent, love God, worship him, enjoy him is because you're a new creation. You never have to wonder, does God love me? And it frees us to spend more time at the real issue at hand that there are lost people in the world and we've got the message that can actually free the captives, set them free. Why would it be just for God to forgive us? Well, the reality is the only way that an unholy people can be counted like we are holy is if somebody else holy did, did, if somebody else completely earned that on our behalf. The only way that that can happen is if Jesus actually is able to make us new and give us a new identity, and he is. Now, I want to, when, when we think here about an undefiled identity and what Christ has given us. I want to close with this illustration. Um, so when my, when my wife and I uh, were engaged, uh, a few weeks before our, before our wedding, our apartment exploded. It was a whole thing, big fire. No one was injured. It was good, but everything was destroyed. It was terrible. Um, anyways, so then we get married and because we got married and also because people felt bad for us because of the fire, we just got so many gift cards. Literally, so we're walking through Target, husband and wife, shopping with like $1,500 of Target gift cards. So you're just like king of the world in Target, you know? You want a Keurig, whatever you you want, you know, throwing it in. Well, we're walking past this aisle and on the shelf, fireproof safe. And I'm like, like, we even think about it. I don't care about the price. Yep. Like, you know, trying to deal with the trauma a little bit. And I'm like, whatever happens, my documents are going to be safe this time. And... I want you to imagine that then that I was a little bit skeptical of this uh, fireproof safe. This didn't actually happen, but I want you to imagine if I really wanted to test it. So I go to my backyard, take my box, put a few papers in it, start a big fire in my backyard, throw the box in. Because I just want to be sure that when the time actually comes, if the time comes, Lord willing, it never happens again. But if it were to come, my stuff would be safe. And I throw it in and I watch the box light up in flames, burn to the ground, just ashes left, all my documents destroyed. Would it be just, would it be right for me to, I don't know, sue the company, maybe go get a new one, tell other people, do not trust this, this is not advertised correctly? Totally just, it would be right, it would be thoroughly correct for me to get upset at this company that I advertised something that is just wholeheartedly wrong. It didn't last, it didn't stand the test of time. This is what you and I often do in our sin, in our lives, we come to God and we really wonder, God, do you still care about me? Do you still love me? First John 1, 9 is trying to tell you, he's just to forgive you. 
That justice has already been poured out on another. You are a holy people. Now, I want you to think, if I bring this firebox, and I really want to test it, I douse it in gasoline, just cover it, huck it in the fire in my backyard, the thing just explodes in flames, but it still stands there. And all the gasoline burns off, the fire dies down, and all that's left is this firebox. All the documents are safe inside. What would be the right move? What would be the just move? What would be right is for me to send a message to the manufacturer and be like, you guys, phenomenal product. Like, this is, this is A+. Plus. This, is, this is the genuine reality of our identity in Christ, except for he didn't give you a fireproof safe. He gave you a sin-proof identity. You and I, regardless if you douse that thing in sin, your identity is unchanged because it wasn't earned by you, it wasn't given by you, it wasn't delivered by you. Every aspect of your identity, regardless of the flame that is thrown, it stands true. He's faithful and just to forgive because the one who came and lived and died and rose again would actually be the one who earned that identity for you. That's who you are. So what happens when the plumb line is set before all of humanity? God's judgment is poured out. People are sifted through and disposed of. Everyone that does not meet his standard, aka everyone, will be judged. This is why we go. But what happens? This is beautiful. Look at the work of Christ. What happens when the plumb line is set next to the church? You're seen as the vertical standing wall on behalf of Christ, who is the one that did that for you. That's your identity and who you are which means that we as a people should spend less time wondering if God truly does love us and far more time telling the lost people in our life about the good news of Jesus. Let's pray.